So if you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. We have been in Luke a little over a year now. We still have ways to go, but it's been a good study. And as you turn there, kids, you'll find in the back, or in the middle of the bulletin, the words for you to be listening to tonight. And those words are steward, manager, money, possessions, mammon, debt or debtor, faithful, and Jesus. Before we begin, let's pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. And your word is a living and two-edged sword that cuts between joint and marrow. So as we are laid bare before your word, we ask that your spirit would work to convict us of our sin. And that he would also bring us assurance of our salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. As he also gives us the strength to live as you have called us to live. Let us see Jesus for what he is the most beautiful and precious treasure. And let us live in the security of your love above all. Speak to us now by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Money, get away. You get a good job with more pay, and you're okay. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. Money, it's a crime. Share it fairly but don't take a slice of my pie. Money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. So says that great philosopher of our, our time, Roger Waters. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you either had a good childhood or a bad one. I'm not sure which. Of course, I could just as easy, easily have started by saying, we live in a material world and I'm a material girl. Or I can let you know that the best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees because money is what I want. All right, I even could have quoted the OJs to remind you of the drastic things people will do for the love of money and pleading with you not to let money rule you, fool you, or change you. Money, possessions, stuff. They're wonderful themes for songs and even TV shows and movies. Over and over, American pop culture emphasizes the power of money and glorifies the pursuit of riches, even while often highlighting the dangers and the cost of elevating money to the most important status. But money is a very awkward subject for a sermon, at least outside of prosperity gospel circles. And I don't know if that's a particularly American thing, or a Western Christianity thing, or if it's just the church environment I'm used to. But when the topic of money comes up, everyone, including the guy in the pulpit, starts to squirm a little bit. Which is a shame. Because one person that has no issue with discussing material possessions is the Lord Jesus. He frequently used money as illustrations in his parables. And he made no bones about the dangers of wealth. So if material wealth is as important and potentially dangerous as God's word tells us that it is, then the pastor and the elders of this church should not, we cannot, shy away from teaching what the Bible has to say about it. 
And as Christians, we not only must submit ourselves to God's word, we must be willing to provoke one another to love and good deeds, even when it comes to how we steward the material possessions God has given us. While the passage before us tonight is certainly about more than how we approach money, it is certainly not about anything less. I want to be completely transparent. This is a difficult passage. It's actually difficult on a couple of levels. First, it's difficult because the details of this parable that Jesus tells are not altogether clear, especially in our culture, which can lead to a lot of questions about what exactly is going on in this story and whether how we understand that changes how we understand the point Jesus is making. So while we work through this parable, I'll let you know from the beginning. There are other slightly different interpretations of the main events of this story. If you're interested in what those are, hit me up, we'll grab coffee, and we'll talk through all of them, and I'll tell you why I landed where I did. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, because regardless of the meaning of the details in this parable, Jesus does have a main point in application. So here's your sermon in a sentence. Because every person will give an account of what the Lord has granted them, Jesus' disciples must be wise stewards who serve God rather than material possessions. So our outline tonight is very simple, with just two points that will break down even further. You can find it in the back of your bulletin. It goes like this. Bad stewardship exemplified, covering verse 1 through the first half of verse 8, and good stewardship encouraged, which covers the second half of verse 8 through verse 13. So first, let's look at the parable itself. Let's begin by asking, why does Jesus tell this parable? If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus faced a challenge. Tax collectors and other sinners were responding to Jesus' preaching by drawing near to him. But the Pharisees saw this and they didn't take kindly to it. They grumbled and they complained about Jesus spending time with the undesirable people in their society. So Jesus told three parables about something lost being found. He was addressing the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, showing them that his salvation of sinners should have led them to rejoice along with the host of heaven as lost people were found. So he had fully addressed that issue in those parables. And now in this chapter, Jesus changes his focus back to the disciples. And I had us read verse 14, Matt read for us, which actually belongs to the next section that Chris will cover next week, Lord willing. But I had us read it tonight to show that while the focus of Jesus' words has shifted, the context hasn't changed. Jesus is now addressing his disciples. He's giving instruction on how they were to live. But he's still doing it in the presence of the Pharisees. And he's still directly addressing the sins of his critics, a sin his disciples must turn away from. The sin of materialism. He's once again teaching his followers while stirring up the religious leaders by speaking directly to their pet sin. And he does it, as he does so often, by telling a story. The story begins with a rich man. But this man is not the focus of the parable. This man has a business, maybe one of many businesses. And as is the case today, what better way is there to get rich than in finance? giving loans to other business people at exorbitant interest rates. 
This business owner doesn't run the day-to-day operations, nor does he keep his own books. Instead, he's hired someone to manage the business for him. This manager would be responsible to oversee the operations, to manage the cash and the goods flowing in and out, and to keep records of each transaction that he makes. And business is good. The owner seems to have made plenty of profits. But one day, he receives a report that the manager has been wasting his possessions. The word translated wasting or uh, squandering is actually the same word Jesus used to describe the younger brother in the parable we heard last week. So either this manager has merely been careless and lost money through bad investments or negligence, or more likely, he's been skimming off the top, helping himself to some of the profits, padding his own pockets. Either way, the charge has been brought to the boss. He has failed as a steward. He's been caught, and he must justify his actions. The rich man notifies the manager of the report he's received, and he sends him to go and to close the books to give a final report of the accounts under his oversight. And notice the manager doesn't protest or seek to defend himself, which shows us these charges are accurate. There is no way around them. His decisions are going to cost him his job. You can't mismanage finances and remain in charge of the checkbook and the ledger. So he goes off to gather these final documents, and his mind drifts off to his future. Very soon, he will be out on the streets. He'll be unemployed, and he'll have a reputation for incompetence, if not thievery. So nobody else is going to hire him to manage accounts. He's going to have to find a new occupation. And the alternatives that he thinks through aren't too attractive. He says, what am I going to do? I can't dig. And in the most common translation, I'm not strong enough, is actually probably being pretty generous here. The issue that he has seems less to be with a physical weakness that would prevent manual labor, and more to be that he's too proud to degrade himself with what was seen as such an undignified job. In our context, it's something like being fired from a director-level position at a corporate job and thinking, what am I going to do, go flip burgers? He thinks he's too good for that kind of work. But the alternative is even worse. He can't bear the thought of being reduced to taking charity and openly begging for money. He needs a plan, and he needs it to come quick. Fortunately for him, as he's pondering a bleak future, the light bulb goes off. The idea occurs to him, and he quickly hatches a plan so that when he's removed from managing this household business, he can be received into someone else's house. He knows just the action to take to keep him off of the streets. While he was incompetent in managing his master's affairs, he's finally showing some promise as a steward in arranging for kindness to be shown to him once he's unemployed. So his plan takes the form of diminishing the debts that others owed his master. As he methodically goes line by line through the records, he calls in the debtors, one at a time, under the auspices of tying up loose ends and handing in his records. But imagine their surprise when the manager starts handing out discounts left and right. 
And, and this is one of those difficult portions of the parable. What exactly is this steward doing? Is he cutting interest rates? Is he removing his commission? Or is he even falsifying the documents to make it seem the loan amounts were lower than they actually were? Regardless of what exactly he's doing, the point is the same. He's using his position as manager of this business to get in the good graces of these clients so that they will return the favor when he's in need. And he's, he's deliberate in his actions. He already has the record of what each person owes. But for psychological effect, he calls them in, has them declare how much they owe. And then he reduces the amount on record. The first debtor owes 100 measures of oil. The sources I read estimated this was in the neighborhood of three years' salary. And he cuts the debt in half, just like that. 18 months' salary forgiven immediately. He has that debtor write a new promissory note in his own handwriting so the paperwork looks original. The next debtor is deeper in debt. A hundred measures of wheat was probably around eight years' salary. And this man gets a 20% write-off. Again, around a year and a half salary wiped off the books and a new record entered by the debtor's own hand. The manager would have gone through the entire list. And after entering all these new amounts, he returns to his master and hands him the books. What are all these people going to do with that money that's suddenly freed up? The manager is hoping that some of that forgiven debt would be put to use feeding and sheltering him now that he's going to be out of a job. And here we run into the next difficulty. How is this rich man going to respond to his employee's shady bookkeeping? Is he even going to find out? While there's debate among scholars and preachers, I take the first half of verse 8 to be the last portion of the parable itself, with the second half showing us Jesus' initial explanation of the story. So the parable ends with the rich man commending the cleverness of the unrighteous manager. This, this verb for commend or praise is universally positive in the New Testament. So the rich man means what he says when he speaks positively of this scheme that the manager has come up with. And yet, the manager is described as unrighteous or dishonest. What he did was not good, but it served his purpose as well. I like how one commentator put it. I agree with what he says is happening here. He says, the owner is a good loser and as such takes off his hat to his manager's class act. So the master is now in an awkward position that he's going to lose face if he goes back and tries to reinstate those original debts. So the manager's ploy has worked. He has gained friends through his shrewd plan. As D.A. Carson writes, it's not that a manager is commended for an act of dishonesty, but that a dishonest manager is commended for an act of prudence. The master declares, touche, as the men part ways. So there we have the parable told. That's what happened in the story. It's an example of bad stewardship, and yet one that showed success in the end. So what on earth are we to make of it? 
Is Jesus suggesting that his disciples pursue underhanded business dealings to save their own skin? As Michael Wilcock pointed out in his commentary, the disciples listening to this parable surely included some of the aforementioned tax collectors, wealthy rogues who had themselves made a good living out of other people's financial affairs and would have appreciated Jesus' story. But they were not to take this as approval for their past dishonesty, nor were they to take it as a pattern for underhanded business dealings in the future. In fact, the first application Jesus makes doesn't have anything to do with money at all. Look at what he says in the first half, or in the second half of verse 8. He says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The point of the parable, Jesus says, is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Those who care only for material goods work hard for, and they're constantly considering their future material security. But far more important than short-term material security is the security of our eternal state. Howard Marshall says, the steward had seen the urgency of the situation and reacted sensibly towards it. So too, it is implied, should men react to the impending judgment of God. Look, I hate to break it to you, but the death rate is still 100%. If you hear nothing else from me tonight, I want you to hear this. You are going to die, and you are going to face the creator of the universe. Many of us spend our time planning our material security and our material future. We save for retirement. We set aside extra for our children's education. We buy health and life insurance. We invest our money and we try to grow what wealth we have. We work to secure against the possibility of losing a job, against economic failure, a recession, or a depression. And this is all good. We shouldn't live only for the moment, like the prodigal son. We should be planning for the future. But Jesus' point is that the sons of the light... Good stewards must be farsighted. We must look beyond this world to the world to come, just as we'll confess later tonight in the Nicene Creed. Jesus' own explanation of this parable, as Calvin says, is that the ungodly and worldly men are more industrious and skillful in conducting the affairs of this fading life than the children of God are anxious to obtain the heavenly and eternal life or careful to make it the subject of their study and meditation. By this comparison, he charges us with highly criminal indifference in not providing for the future with at least as much earnestness as ungodly men display by attending their own interests in this world. What does your life say of your vision? Is your soul secure? Because not only are we stewards of everything that God has given us. Our sin actually places us in his debt. Have you come to the judge of all men to settle your accounts? If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if your spiritual security is not in his payment of the debt your sin has incurred, if your eternal life hangs in the balance, 
If you think your morality or your goodness will be enough to buy the favor of God, then I plead with you. Let tonight be the night that you seek his forgiveness. Your sin against a holy God is far more than eight years' salary. The punishment it deserves is far more dire than being tossed out on the streets. You cannot be good enough to wipe away the debt that you owe him. Even an eternity of penance cannot repay God for breaking his holy law. And and don't kid yourself. A day of reckoning will come. In Jesus' story, he doesn't say how long this steward carried on in his dishonest way. But his mismanagement found him out. And he was called to account. We will each face the Lord to give an account of our lives, and we don't know when. Today is the day of salvation. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from your sin. And the good news is this. For those who come to him for forgiveness, the Lord doesn't knock off 20% or 50% and expect us to pay the rest back. He doesn't even merely wipe the slate clean and expect us to keep it that way. God looks at all those united by faith to Christ and sees them covered by his blood. And in his ledger, he writes, paid in full. And even more, he sees the merit of Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law. And on his account, we are heirs of an eternal kingdom. The perfect substitutionary life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the only hope of eternal security. And he offers it to all who will come to him and lay hold of it by faith. But what about those who are trusting Christ? That's actually who Jesus is speaking to directly, the the sons of light. So Christian, ask yourself, are you investing in eternal things? Do you spend more time working for material or spiritual security? Are you availing yourself of the means of grace that feed and strengthen your faith? Would you suffer more from missing a paycheck or missing worship? From losing your job or losing your church? Do you spend more time tracking your bank account and your investments or in your fight with sin and temptation? Do you look forward to and sacrifice for your retirement more than eternity with the Lord Jesus and all his people? Are you investing in his kingdom? Those who wish to be good stewards must start by stewarding that which is most precious, our own souls. Jesus goes on to explain some specific ways that this far-sighted, heavenly perspective of stewardship actually works itself out in the lives of his disciples. With verse 9 showing us, good stewards are not only far-sighted, they're also free-handed. They're generous with what they do have. Jesus reiterates that unrighteous wealth, by which he just means material possessions, that will fail. You can't take it with you. So we should be like the steward and look at our possessions as means to an end. Means to the ends of eternal life and blessing in heaven. 
And this, this verse surely has been severely misused in church history. Jesus is not teaching the practice of indulgences. He's not saying that by giving your money away, you can buy your way into heaven. But think about the beautiful picture that he's giving. He's giving a picture of entering into the eternal state and having a greeting party awaiting you, made up by all of those who have benefited by your generosity on this earth. And at the head of the line is the Lord Jesus himself. Because as Calvin writes, whatever any man may have generously bestowed on his neighbors, the Lord acknowledges as if it had been done to himself. The wealth that we have can be used for temporary pleasure or security, or it can be used to store up treasures in heaven. So how exactly can we go about being free-handed stewards? This will probably be the last time I get to address you from here on this subject without the apparent conflict of interest of my income being dependent on your generosity. So for now, let me boldly say, if you are a member of Christ's church, one of the best ways you can obey Jesus' word is by giving to support the work of the church and meeting the needs of your brothers and sisters here. But I also have to say, at this point, I feel a little bit like the Apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. Let me paraphrase him. Concerning generosity, you have no need for anyone to preach to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters. But we urge you to do this more and more. Christ Church, you are by far the most generous and giving church I have ever experienced. What we have been able to do in the young life of our church is truly incredible because of your faithfulness in giving. And not just in tithes and offerings. It seems like not a week goes by that I don't hear of one of you helping meet the needs of someone else in our body. So my encouragement in that regard is keep it up. And I can tell you, you will have friends waiting to receive you in heaven. There are many of you in this room that if you don't beat us there, I can tell you Aaron and Bonnie Rains will be standing, waiting to receive you into the eternal dwellings and thanking you for the generosity you have shown us. And I imagine there are many in this room that would say the exact same thing. So my only further challenge to you in being free-handed stewards is this. Continue that generosity here, but find ways to expand it even beyond the walls of this church. Use what you have to serve your neighbors, to support mission work, to help the poor both here and around the world. Take seriously the command to do good to all, especially to the household of God, and encourage one another to that end. So good stewards are far-sighted, they're free-handed, and they're faithfully consistent. The amount that we have should not be the determining factor in deciding how to steward it. Faithfulness is a matter of the heart. And when we set aside our responsibility because we think what we have is insignificant, we expose that it's our hearts that are being unfaithful. 
To be blunt, we are always tempted to define the word rich as someone who has more than I do. But just in terms of material possessions, compared to the rest of the world, everyone in here has much. The best data I was able to find on the average income around the world is that the average is about $10,000 per year. The United States ranks in the top five nations in the world in per capita income. And just think historically. Think of Jesus' original audience compared to your life. You have indoor plumbing, electricity, modern medicine, motor vehicles, and access to the amassed knowledge of human history on a supercomputer you carry in your pocket. By so many measures, we are filthy rich. And we will have to give an answer for how we use that prosperity. But even if you don't have as much as someone else, Jesus says, if you aren't faithful with what you do have, you wouldn't be faithful with more. In fact, it may be God's mercy that you don't have more right now. He may be preventing you from squandering his gifts by limiting how many of them you're responsible for. And this doesn't apply only to stuff. All that we have comes from the Lord. And it's entrusted to us to deal with it faithfully. We will give an account of our treasure, but we will also answer for how we spend our time, our talents, and the truth. So those of you who are unmarried or married without children, are you using the time you have for selfish or sinful reasons? Or are you investing in things that last? Parents who have so much to do and so little time, are you being faithful in the time that you do have to read the Bible with your kids, to pray with and for them, to connect with and care for your spouse? Are you spending more time for their and money on their material security and future than their spiritual maturity? How about your talents? Do you use those things that you're good at to benefit the church, to benefit your neighbors, or only for yourself? Is there something that someone else is lacking that you can make up for with the talent the Lord has given you? How about the truth? Kids and teenagers, I'm going to talk to you for a minute, so look up at me. You are members of the covenant people of God. You have been given God's word. You've been given the sign of baptism. You have been given parents who love you enough to bring you to church. And you have been given a church that loves you and prays for you. You are responsible for the truth you have been told. You must take hold of those promises that you have been given. And if you reject them, if you walk away from the church when you grow up, God will hold you accountable. If you turn your back on the church, there is nothing left for you out there in the world. You must steward the truth that you have been given. There are many children who don't grow up in Christian homes, who don't have this blessing that you have. So embrace this gift, cherish it, 
Believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Don't squander the treasure of growing up in the covenant people of God. And all of us have the blessing of living in a time and a place where we can freely access and share God's word, where good Bible teaching is widely available. We will be held accountable for either accepting or rejecting the truth of God's word. And we will be held accountable for whether we hoard it and keep it to ourselves or share it with others. May we be found faithful stewards of the truth. And I had so much more I wanted to say with specific application. But I will pray that the Holy Spirit will help us each to see how we need to grow in stewardship. Ultimately here, Jesus helps us see our stuff for what it truly is in verse 11. It's unrighteous wealth. Augustine pointed out that if material possessions were true riches, they would give us true security. But they can't give us security. So we must use them wisely in order to be entrusted with true heavenly riches. As Daryl Bach put it, the exhortation is to be faithful now so that one may be given greater responsibility in the life to come. So good stewards are far-sighted, free-handed, faithfully consistent, and finally they are fully committed. Jesus puts it very simply. You cannot be a servant of both God and money. And there's something interesting going on with the word mammon in this passage. You may, you may have heard that. It may be in your translation. In the ESV, it's translated as wealth in verse 9 and again in verse 11 and then as money at the end of verse 13. And this word mammon is an Aramaic word. It just means material goods. But it has, it has its root in this idea of faith, something that you trust in, something you're relying on. So there's some wordplay going on in verse 11. If you're not trustworthy in the thing that so many trust in, you won't be trustworthy at all. And then in verse 13, Jesus almost personifies it as he presents a binary choice. Trust God or trust mammon, but you cannot serve both. Will you be like the psalmist and meditate on the Lord and his word day and night? Or will you be like the evil people described in Micah 2 that spent the whole night thinking about how to dishonestly get more wealth? Will you count the cost to do whatever it takes to pursue holiness, even sacrificing everything in this world for eternity with him? Or will you give yourself over to the pursuit of riches above all? And I think there's an important warning here. You don't have to have money to be a slave to it. Obsession with getting it is just as dangerous as possessing a lot of it. And just having money doesn't mean you have to be a slave to it. As D.A. Carson points out, we can have both God and money, but we can't serve both. So do you have your money, or does your money have you? So how can we know we're making ourselves a servant of mammon rather than a servant of God? I thought, I thought of some examples. I'm sure you could think of more. Slavery to mammon might show up as coveting or as hoarding what we have in not giving to the church, not giving to the poor, not taking care of our families. 
It might show up in dishonest business dealings, defrauding or cheating. Or it might show up as getting into excessive debt or spending too much. It may show up in discontentment or never feeling secure. Or it might show up in judging others' value based on what they have or don't have or what they can or can't offer you. But in the end, serving mammon will only leave you empty. It is by its very nature transient and temporary, and it cannot give eternal security. Don't make the mistake of enslaving yourself to the idol of stuff when the God who so freely gives is offering you so much more. As Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So brothers and sisters, steward well what you have with an eye on eternity. The call for us tonight is to let go of our grip on material possessions and take firm hold on Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty, we may have true riches in heaven. By his spirit, may each of us receive those riches and live with him and one another forever. Let's pray. Father, take your word, drive it deep in our hearts. Would you kill our idols? Would you grant us life? Would you grant us renewed vigor to pursue the way you would have us to live. May we honor you with what you have given us and may we be found faithful and thank you for Jesus who covers all of our bad stewardship. May we rest secure in him. We ask these things in his name. Amen.